good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kayla. Yes, today is Monday. It is Disco Medical Monday. It's only one of my favorite times of the week. And today is the 11th of July. I hope that you're enjoying the warmer weather. As I was heading to studio this morning, I opened my front door and there was this blast of freezing cold wind. So I suspect that it might be getting a little bit cooler. Anyhow, you stay nice and warm. Stay by your radio. We're going to be bringing you some excellent, excellent information this hour, as always. So my guest today is Dr. Jackie Schultz. Jackie is uh, she's a homeopath. She's also a clinical doctor. And today we're talking about integrated medicine. What is integrated medicine? So uh, welcome. Dr. Schultz, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Oh, it's lovely. It's been too many years. It's been a while. But I just want to make one quick correction. When you say yes. clinical doctor, I am, but I'm not a GP. Yes. So I just want to make sure that I don't put anything out there that I'm not to create any issues. Okay. All right. She's also not an osteopath. <laughs> There's a whole lot of things that she's not. <laughs> I'm also honest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. So let's just talk about what is integrated medicine. So integrative for me is being part of a team. And essentially what that means is when you have a patient, as much as the patient has come to you, very rarely are you going to be the sole person able to provide everything that that patient needs. It's about finding out what that patient needs and then identifying who is the most other appropriate practitioner to work with you if necessary to get this patient to optimum health. Don't all doctors do that though? Is your doctor or your GP not your manager you know that you need uh, bloods he's going to send you for blood tests he's going to get the result he's going to then say well you need to go and see this specialist that specialist this is what we're going to do is that not what happens anyway a lot of the time not and I think it's it's a time crisis a lot of GPs are landing up where they're hugely under pressure with patients there are many patients they need to see in a day people are arriving at their doors but have booked already and time is an issue so a lot of the time it's crisis control they're putting out that fire but they don't always have the time and I am generalizing certainly there are those that will spend more time with patients but very often they're so inundated with work that they don't have enough time to dig deeper they put out the crisis there and then and I think a lot of the time the GP assumes the patient will come back or follow it up but the patient doesn't. Look, I, I hear it, and I hear why they sometimes have the approach that they do. Right, you go and you say, well, you know, I've had this headache for three days, and they prescribe something in the hope that sending you away, it's either going to right itself, or you, and you're going to feel better, or it's not, in which case your second visit is going to be something which is going to require you to, you know, well, requires more investigation. Is, is that is that how it happens generally at the it, moment? It does. Um, I also think that the training is different. I think a lot of the time the the my colleagues that are GPs that we have great chats about, they're just taught differently. They, they are taught to look for a crisis, and once the crisis is picked up, they will either treat it or refer it to a specialist. But a lot of the time 
they won't necessarily be the ones doing the investigative work themselves. They might identify the issue and then refer to an endocrinologist or a rheumatologist or a gastroenterologist. But very often the GP will put out the initial fire and then refer them out, which is integrative too. A lot of the time the GPs will stick to mainstream conventional practitioners and not necessarily look but more laterally to allied practitioners who can offer a huge amount of support to those patients. Okay, so when you say allied pr- practitioners, so if you if you are an integrative doctor, right? Is is that is that a real? Yeah, is that a you real get practitioners. So there, there's a whole group of, of GPs who are part of integrative doctors, and those doctors will absolutely include or or. or throw their net wider to look at which practitioners can offer their patients either solution or part of the solution or assist their patient who may not be necessarily only along the conventional medicine line. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is 101.9 High FM. This is Diske Medical Monday. My guest this morning is Dr. Jackie Schultz. We're talking about integrated medicine and I would love to hear from you. How would you feel if your doctor prescribed yoga for you? Instead of writing you a script for the latest painkiller or stress relief medication, if your doctor prescribed yoga for you, tell me, what what would you do? Would that be a good thing? Would that be a bad thing? How would you take it? You let me know. 34519 is the text line or 061-895-1019 on Telegram. Go on. I know you want to do it. Coming back, we're going to be talking more about integrated medicine with Dr. Jackie Schultz. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Time has just gone 12 minutes past 10. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is Discam Medical Monday. My guest this morning is Dr. Jackie Schultz. And we're talking about integrated medicine. If you went to your doctor and you said, you know what, I've had this headache for three days. And your doctor says, you know what, I'm going to prescribe for you three months of yoga. How would you feel about that? Would you be frustrated that it takes a little bit more effort than just popping a pill? How would you react? I'd love to hear from you. 34519 is the text line. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. Alternatively, you can send me a text on Telegram if you have the app. And that number is 061-895-1019. You can also... I suppose you can tweet at Chai FM, C-H-A-I-F-M. And uh, how would you feel if you went to your doctor, Jackie, and you said, you know what, I have these terrible, terrible cramps once a month. And he said, well, you know what, you need yoga, you need to do lots of walking, and you should probably get some acupuncture. What would you do? Well, for me, it's, when I look at a patient and I, patients come in with chronic conditions, it's first about working out what's wrong. If one side worked out, and, and my patients know they're going to have fairly extensive blood tests done, not because I don't know what's wrong. I need to prove that there is nothing ominous and nothing serious that needs to be followed through. And if we do the fairly extensive blood test and everything is good, I can rule out that there isn't, um, a, are you talking about cramps from a dysmenorrhea perspective? Or what yeah, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. Yeah. But if, in, if, for example, in that case, are there any gynecological concerns, how the hormones, uh, red blood cell magnesium, one, thyroid, once I've ruled out 
the endocrine system and anything that can be related, and there is no pathology, then absolutely. So how would you rule it out? I mean, just as an example, would you send that patient for scans, for x-rays, for, you know, perhaps refer them to a gynecologist? So where that starts, and, and, and sometimes I find... I think my patients find it a bit frustrating because it's actually in their timeline, in their past medical history. We have to spend quite a bit of time going right from childhood. For In this case, for example, how old were they when they started their menarche, their periods? How have their periods been? Have they changed? What's happened? Has there been times when they haven't had a period? And try to work out clinically what's happened in their timeline. And then we don't want to have an idea and go, oh, this patient's definitely got a cyst or something. But we have to prove it one way or the other. So hence the blood test. And if I'm still not happy, I might send him for an ultrasound. And if the ultrasound picks up something which I'm not happy about, then absolutely. Then the next port of call is I send them to a gynecologist because that's within their scope of practice to investigate further. But my point being is you have to find out what's wrong first before you can prescribe anything, be it yoga, an over-the-counter painkiller, a vitamin, or something more scheduled. It's so interesting. We were talking earlier this morning about a about a case where, you know, all the all the boxes were checked and ticked for one particular, um, you know, in this case, all the doctors thought that this person had had a stroke when in actual fact it wasn't, and it was only when it was confirmed by a scan, and that was three doctors down the line, mm. which is so which is so interesting. And you have to earn it. So do we want to do an MRI for every patient? Well, in one way, yes, because we've got great information. But no, they haven't earned <laughs> I it yet. <laughs> discovery management. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you, you know why? It's the information that's magic. But financially, it's not, it's not viable. So they have to earn it, which I agree. But you have to know what's wrong. Because once you know what the pathology is or the dysfunction is, then you can treat it. And then comes back to your answer. You can decide whether it's yoga or breathing exercises or time out. <laughs> so I'm asking you, if you went to your doctor with, a, with an ailment, right, and your doctor said, you know what, what you need is yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but it really is, mm. it is a more holistic approach. You know, how would you feel about that? Would you look at your doctor a little bit squiff? <laughs> <laughs> so you let me know what your thoughts are. Three, four, five, one, nine. Karen already weighing in. And Karen says that would be brilliant. And the way we eat as well. She says, I would definitely do this. Thanks, Karen. You can be like Karen. You can <laughs> send us a text on 34519. That's the text line. Or 61 this is Discam Medical Monday. It is Monday the 11th of July, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. My guest is Dr. Jackie Schultz. We're talking about integrated medic medicine. Okay, so where is this, is this a model that everybody's going to be following? Why don't more people follow it if it's, if it's such an integrated approach and holistic approach to well-being? So there is an evolution in medicine, and if you think along the time, so you know, when I started studying homeopathy at UJ in 1993, people said, studying home or what? It was not part of our vocabulary. It was such a foreign concept. something for hippies. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of the time people would look down on you because they wouldn't realize you've done six years of essentially medicine, pharmacology, diagnostics, pathology, your own material medical care, which is your own pharmacology, and it's... You know, we were very fortunate being the first intake at UJ. I thought I was dying in third year because 
on the workload and that. But we were so fortunate because we had the most phenomenal lecturers. We had uh, lecturers that had come from, like we did our dissection under Bev Kramer at medical school. We didn't have dissection labs yet. And we had um, uh, Emma Vipkema from Lancet, who's a phenomenal hematologist, teach us hematology. We never learned hematology. We learned hematology because <laughs> she, I don't think she could dumb it down for us. So we were so blessed in that our education we received was was amazing. And I think that that happened because UJ bringing in a new medical degree parallel to the current MBBCH had to make sure that their students matched up. And as I said at the time, I thought I wasn't going to cope. And now I'm so grateful because it left me with a very clinical diagnostic mind where I never wanted to be a you know, lawyer or fireman or an accountant growing up. I always wanted to go into medicine. But, you know, as we were chatting earlier on, a lot of the, the questioning in medicine ended, um, certainly when I was a teenager. We would go to our GP, and as you would say what's wrong with you, before you even finish your sentence, a lot of the time the script pad was coming out. And I was just like, well... I, I don't think things have changed yeah. since then, I'm sorry to say. And it's there's a time and place. You know, I often say to my patients, I'm very blessed in my practice that patients aren't coming with bleeding from the eyeballs, that they, you know, they're not needing stitches or surgery. That's not my practice. Most of my patients that come in are patients that essentially, they're not, they, they're definitely not well, but some of them are not ill that they can't work, but they know they're not well as they should be. There's something niggling all the time. Yeah. And, and it's not something that they can live on a painkiller on. They realize that there's something going on and there's something within the body which there's a dysfunctional imbalance. It can be something that sounds so small, but it's huge to patients where suddenly they're constipated. They've never been constipated in their life, but now their tummy is not working. Interesting. I mean, one doesn't even think about that because isn't constipation only from diet? No. No. There are so many reasons. I mean, in the extreme cases, there can be an obstruction. Um, it can be anxiety-based. Um, it can be absolutely be diet. It can be stress-related. Um, there are so, it can be from... from oh, travel. Travel is something. I remember Food. reading something about people who travel don't like to go to bathrooms that are not their own. They knape kings. <laughs> they knape. <laughs> so, you know, I'm saying something as, as minor as that where... It's not a life or death situation, thank God, but it makes the person incredibly uncomfortable and they're a little bit embarrassed to talk about it because it's, you know, the, you know, it's not so bad, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got any questions for Dr. Schultz, Dr. Jackie Schultz, give us a, send us a text, 34519 is the text line, or 061-895-1019. I, I hear it, I hear about, doctors and you know the script is out before you've even finished going through your symptoms that's it doctors you know when you're seeing the same symptoms from 10 different patients in one day you know that there's some kind of what's the word a rotavirus mm. right mm. isn't that what it is it's a rotavirus right. so mm. everybody gets the same script and off we go the, I think the the challenge comes when somebody's displaying the same symptoms as everyone else in the rotavirus, but actually it isn't rotavirus. It might be more se more severe. And more you have serious. to be objective. Yeah, you know it's hard. It's hard when you're seeing. Uh, I mean, I often use the example. I might see ten or fifteen sinusitis patients in a day. Yeah. And I think if I was a GP, my training would have been to, to prescribe an antibiotic, a nasal spray, 
um, possibly a painkiller to deal with it and send them on their way. But you know, the way that we'll look at it is, is try to work out uh, if possible, is it bacterial, is it viral, is it allergic, um, is it uh, a bone structure issue where this is chronic, is it allergy induced, where is it coming from? And the way that they present homeopathically, we take quite an in-depth case his history where every script will be different. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's no, for in the way that I see medicine and being integrative is you need to embrace everything. If, if I've got a child who comes in to see me with a temperature of 39, I'm not going to just say to the mom, listen, just hold that child carefully and, and watch her. I'm like, no, and, and, you know, that child is going to require paracetamol. Um, we don't, first we take no risks. So it's about being able to say it's not just what I can offer, it's what the child needs. And, 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 and saying if you are not happy please um, either phone me or go to your GP let them have another look I mean I, and I know money is can, I, can I challenge you on that mm. when we run a temperature that is the body's way of fighting infection why would we give paracetamol to a child to bring their temperature down we're taking away the body's main mechanism for fighting infection you're right our body um, releases pyrogens which heats up internally to stop the virus from replicating so you're absolutely right but there's a point where the fever can become dangerous where you actually damage the proteins right. in the body and we don't want febrile convulsions and it's very much about understanding about that child which is, comes back to where we start about case history and past medical history so if i look at my daughter Noah would never have a temperature of oh, 37.8, 38.3. When she started with the 37.5, I used to literally knape and run through the house saying words that I can't mention on radio because I knew within half an hour she'd be at 40. So th in that case, I wasn't going to wait and see where she went because from her at birth, we knew exactly I think her first viral infection was about when she was seven months old. Yeah. And it went straight up. And it's dangerous above 40. A temperature above 40 is dangerous. For a baby. For a baby. And for an adult. Really? I mean, I have the joy of having COVID in May. And we had the, the fever. There are a whole lot of different Omicron strains. And we had temps of between 38 and a half and 41 for six days. It's not good f for your brain to have a temperature of 40. Yeah, but it kills anything else in your body. And you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, collateral damage. <laughs> okay. So when you're looking at what is the difference between integrated medicine and functional medicine? Because I often get the two confused. Confused, yeah. I would probably say, and I'm certainly open to correction, that functional medicine is a part of integrative medicine. So functional medicine um, is a predominantly diagnostic approach to treating a patient and it was it's very interesting it was there was a paper published by the Institute of Functional Medicine in the 1990s I think called Medicine of the 21st Century it was a white paper and essentially what this paper said is that the American government realized that they were spending millions and millions and millions of dollars <laughs> on patients every year and they realized that they had a massive geriatric population because no longer is it that the person gets to 75 and passes away we are now hitting easily 90s and hundreds of people living. But the thing is, they weren't living because they were healthy. They were living to that age because they were on 5 to 15 scheduled drugs to keep them alive. And that was costing the American government billions of dollars. And not to say, oh, zero quality of life, but they relied on those drugs. So 
what um, a group of practitioners realized was, well, maybe what we need to do is we can't manage this financial output all the time. Why don't we look at the cause of the problem? And they had a whole paradigm shift. And that's where functional medicine was born. So in the States, it's predominantly a, uh, a specialist-driven field where you'll get a gastroenterologist who becomes a functional medicine or a neurologist or a family physician. And essentially what it is is, is trying to work out where the problem started and not just, and when I say not just because it's part of it, is absolutely conventional drug therapy when required, but looking to see is there an amino acid that's missing? Is there dietary change? Are there specific vitamins and minerals? Because, you know, what, what was interesting in times of COVID for me is obviously for the way that I see patients, I've always looked at vitamins, minerals, amino acids as part of what they might need. But for the average GP, I used to laugh because I'm related to Harry Seftel and he would often go, oh, it's just you know, expensive wee. And I think a lot of the time it can be because we have no regulatory body in our country for natural medicine. Why? I, I can't answer that. And it's a problem because the first thing you'll hear me tell a patient is just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. Well, it wouldn't work. It, it, just because it's natural doesn't mean it doesn't work. No, no. I'm not saying it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but mean, I'm it, saying... But it should, it should be regulated. I mean... And, but that's a problem. So I, I often use the example of my patients. I've got a beautiful office with big windows. And I say, you know, you and I can go to my garden. We can take a beautiful container, take the soil from my, my plants, put any label on there with anything we want pay certain pharmacies a, 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 an amount to get into the pharmacy, put it by basically buying shelf space and selling it there, and they'll probably get a rebate on, on the items. But the problem is, is when you go into pharmacies, number one, you assume that that product is safe and regulated and researched, and it doesn't have to be. I'm not saying everything is, is not a good quality in pharmacies, but you have to know what you're getting. You have to know as the, the patient what you're buying and ask the questions. Listen, I think that if you're talking about your isolated little pharmacies, I think that that's definitely one. But, uh, you know, one would, one would assume that the, that the bigger chains are going to be more circumspect about listing things. I mean, the, I mean can you imagine, you know, the, the number of applications mm. that they have to go through I mean, there has to be some standard. I, I would assume so. Yeah. Obviously not being in that... Look, I don't know. We don't, you we don't feel, have other... I would imagine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also with everything in life, there's quality. So there, there might be a certain level that you need to get into the pharmacy brands, but there are better quality products that are out there. But my point being is, it's you know, I, look, I often tease my patients and say, I'll use an Australian product. They'll be like, why? And I'll go, because Aussie's a nanny state. They check, they recheck, they check it again. And one more time for luck. And I know that that product, once it's come through to me, that's what's on the labels is in the tablet. And the research they've given me has been proven. Where, unfortunately, we don't have the, the luxury of having that proof here, and it's a guaranteed proof. Mm. And I want to know, no matter what I give a patient, be it a, 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 a tincture, a botanical, that it's got the guarantees that I know what it's going to do for the patient, and the dosage that has been suggested to me is safe for that patient. So interesting. So interesting. You're on 101.9 High FM. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday. Pharmacists okay. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care. 
you're on 101.9 High FM. I'm Kathy Kaler. My guest this morning, Dr. Jackie Schultz, and we are talking about integrated medicine. It just sounds so expensive, Jackie, to have all these different professionals, right? So I got to my my integrated doctor or a doctor that's following an integrated approach, and I say, you know, I've had this terrible sore foot, and you know, we take the long history since my childhood and, you know, the time that the horse stood on my foot and the other time that I jumped down off the horse and it was on my heel and the other time that I was <laughs> dancing and it went on my same heel and now I'm going to be referred to another specialist and the specialist is going to say, you know what, you need to actually go see um, a podiatrist. It sounds very expensive. Is it not just draining more medical resources. But that's where the question comes in. So the most important thing for me is you need to earn your investigation. So the, absolutely, the clinical history for me and the physical examination is it's the foundation of yeah. where any, any uh, practitioner should start. And then you need to work out, so for example in this case, let's use your sore foot, is you need to say to the patient, well has it ever been x-rayed? And if it hasn't been x-rayed, that's where we start because that's not a horribly expensive procedure. So it's not like you've, well, have you been doing anything different lately that you haven't done previously? Exactly, and things could change, you know. I'll never forget <coughs> in my <laughs> final year of anatomy, we have OSCEs, and all I said on the drive to UJ is, please don't get the foot, please don't get the foot, please don't get the foot, because <laughs> there's seven planes to the foot, and of course, as you know it, I got the foot. And like the foot is an extremely complex part of our body. It's sure. not just this thing we stand on. There's seven planes of tissue that we have to look at, and there are tendons, and there are ligaments, and there are nerves, and there are circulatory issues. So, you know, just by saying this, you actually have to consider each option. You need to see the way the person's standing, and you need to see, is there an arch issue, and where is the pain, and does it refer? And investigations are important because as much as I'd love to be a superhero, I don't have x-ray eyes. And it upsets me greatly every day when I wake up and I can't see through things. But I have to just accept this and send the patient for an x-ray. And you have to start somewhere. But as, as we joke and go, oh, I'd love an MRI, absolutely, because an MRI is going to give you literally sliver by sliver of what's happening. But you have to earn an investigation. And even with blood tests, I mean, the first thing I'll check with the patient is, are they on a medical aid, number one? Number two, do they have savings? Number three, are they okay that we send them for these blood tests? Because you, you can't just send a patient for a huge panel of blood tests and when they get a bill, if they, um, you know, they no longer have cover from their medical aid of, of four or 5,000 rand, be shocked when they come back to you. You need to inform the patient of what the blood test might cost. Do they have those funds available? Are they prepared to go for it? Or otherwise, what a lot of the time I'll end up doing is I'll have to split the blood test that I want to do in three or four different sections. So as long as the patient isn't completely phobic about needles and they're okay to do that, we can gather the information just slightly slower. But you absolutely have to work with the patient. And, you know, especially now in this day and age, we're not sitting in a position where anybody that I know of has a whole lot of income that they can just kind of throw away. Yeah, exactly. And medical aids, I mean, you know, when people are on a medical aid, it's, it's a very interesting phenomena. They want to get their money's worth. Mm. So if you've had a fall and you go to the clinic, right, your local private clinic, they're going to want to do two different kinds of scans, a whole lot of 
blood tests, which actually is not necessary because sometimes a fall is just a fall, Jackie. You just have, but you have to start at the beginning. And that's why I say it's so important to have a sit down and, and a history with the person. Because let, let's go to this foot story. Now, what if this person goes, mm, I did have issues with the, the, the horse stood on my foot as a child. It was addressed then. I had some soft tissue damage. No issues since then. But now I've got the most terrible pain there. And you can't just go, oh, it must be from the time the horse stood on your foot. No, but it could be because you started running two weeks ago and, you, and you have something called in. plantar fasciitis. But that's where the history comes in. So yeah. if you don't ask the questions, you won't get the answers. And it's one of the things I also lectured UJ, um, the, the fourth and fifth year homeopathic students when it comes to pediatrics, is, for example, with kids. It's very difficult with kids because often they won't able to answer you if they can't talk. Or number two, they, they just don't have the vocab yet or can explain it. But if you spend time with the parent and ask them what was normal before and what are they doing now, there's a lot of information you can get. But that's why I say you've got to spend time with the patient, the patient and or the parent, because if you say, listen... Oh, that's true. I mean, if you think about it, when you go, to, go, when you go and see a specialist, they, they always you know book off like an hour to yeah. take your your first appointment will always be this long appointment that's right? the most important i want to know what's changed you were fine last month when you're walking now you're walking with a limp what have you done differently did you buy a new pair of shoes did you start running did you um stand on a thorn you know what changed it could be something as 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 minor as they stood on a thorn while they were busy pruning their, their thorn bushes their, their rose bushes and now it's in their foot yeah, you know what I like about your approach, aside from the expenses, the expense <laughs> part of it, <laughs> is that, you know, if you if you're driving along and your car brake light goes off, right? What goes goes on? In the past, the medical approach has been all right. Well, you know what? Let's just slip the snip the brake. Let's just snip that wire that turns on the brake light, and the problem's gone away. But what you're talking about is actually going and looking at the brakes. Yeah. And fixing the brakes. And the electrics in there. Now, is there a fault? And why is that happening? Yeah. Just a question from Carol. Carol says, uh, what would the wise doctor say about collagen? So I'm going to come back to what we spoke about quality earlier on. So collagen is something which probably in the last, um, in my practice, three to five years, has definitely come to be a, a far more popular option. And yes. For what? This is what I was going to say. So, yes, aesthetics has become a huge thing with, with a lot of patients. For me, in my practice, it's not my focus at all. But for a lot of patients, that's where collagen started because they wanted to get elasticity back in their skin and they wanted to do something that would assist with them feeling younger and keeping younger aesthetically when you looked at them. But collagen, when it comes to musculoskeletal conditions, arthritis, and that is phenomenal. But Really? You, mm, that's interesting. Because collagen is what helps to support your joint. Yeah. So, you know, years ago it would just be about taking a, a, a supplement with um, chondroitin and um, maybe a bit of collagen in there. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, not, not necessarily just collagen now. We're finding a lot of different uh, suppliers creating products where it can either be bovine from a cow, where it's just the pure amino acid collagen. There's fish collagen, as far as I know, there's it's also from chicken. So you can choose different types of collagen. And for me... Important it, if you're looking at cash root, absolutely. as just saying. Yeah. And it's about finding, ensuring that the product you're buying is a decent quality. And, it, and you know, this is what I always say to people, it doesn't have to be expensive to be good. You know... 
Expensive does not equal good, but you've got to ask the questions and spend a bit of time researching what you're taking. I mean, I've often said to patients, when it comes to Omega oils, it's my pet irritation, because patients will come and I'll say, part of the past mental question, what are you currently taking? Tell me over-the-counter, tell me supplements, tell me scheduled meds, anything. Tell me what you're swallowing on a daily basis. I don't care if it's a smarty, I want to know, because in my opinion, no matter what you take, there's going to be an effect. And patients will say an Amiga. I go, well, which one? They go, no, an Amiga. And, and Amiga oils um, are fish-based. And but you can obviously, like all things, you get high quality and low quality. But our seas are a toilet. Essentially, literally, our seas are a toilet. I want to know what fish. And if it doesn't tell you what fish on the container, that's a problem. Okay, so on that note, where should we be getting our Amiga oils from? So Farmed salmon? No. Farmed fish, a- no? No, usually it's a cold... Deep water fish, so you're looking at your sardines, your anchovies, your Alaskan polycut fish. You're not looking at your tuna and your salmons because what we're trying to avoid is cancer-inducing compounds, your PCBs. You want want a, a supplement that has done enough toxicology reports to ensure that what you're putting into your mouth is not only going to help you, but certainly not do you any more harm. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so if we're looking for these supplements these omega supplements look for deep water deep cold fish. water fish cold water fish mm. so you're looking and, for and alaskan fish you're looking for sardines and you're looking right. for anchovies anchovies even mackerel and, and essentially what you want is you want to know that there's a four to three ratio of your epa to dha so epa is a cosapentaenoic acid dha oh, okay. is a no, cosapentaenoic no, 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 acid no, no. <laughs> no, but let me tell you Jackie, why my five-year-old brain <laughs> didn't understand a word you just said but okay let me so translate e- please omega oils are made up of two types of oil yes epa yeah. and dha okay now these components do different things in the body epa is essentially your anti-inflammatory component and it keeps the cell wall nice and healthy your DHA is the brain food and the cardiac protective. Ah, so you need okay, both. Okay, so you need both. And depending on what you wanted to treat, like I might have a patient who uh, there's a history of depression and everything else in her body is looking pretty good. I'm going to go for something which is predominantly DHA high because that's what I want, not just an omega oil. Just remind me again why DHA? Um, brain with depression and concentration and focus. So you'll find a lot of your Does a- it help with inflammation? It will, but yes. the EPA is better for inflammation. So if you want a general good omega, you want an EPA and DHA, and the ratio to be what you want should be four to three of the EPA to the DHA. Okay. And then you want one that is ideally sardine, anchovy, Alaskan polycut fish, mackerel, and not necessarily your tuna and your salmon's only because of toxins. Yes. Okay, so just to recap, did you answer Carol's question about the collagen? What do you think? I mean, is it something that people should be taking as a supplement for if their joints? If Absolutely. If you have a joint issue, if you have an osteoarthritis, uh, even a rheumatoid arthritis, um, obviously if you're not allergic to any animal where it's come from, uh, be it beef or, or chicken, I mean, I, I laugh because I have, of course, living in Santon, my dogs live a Santon lifestyle, and they wet nose dogs, and they have collagen in their food every day because they're going to have joint issues from having a really rubbish Aww. diet early days. So, yes, if you have a joint predisposition to some uh, chronic inflammatory condition, and even within the gut, a lot of patients will take the collagen to help their gut 
because of the... How does it do that? It helps the immune system in their gut. So it's, so not, it's, it's not a focus that I would look at as my first port, port of call. Yeah. You know, when we look at gut health, and, and really gut health is the beyond end all on a patient. You want it to be healthy. But, I mean, I've got patients who are going, since they've been taking collagen, their gut health is so good. How can they tell? Would it be, it, it would <laughs> I, I'm just asking. I mean, uh, it's so internal. How would one know if your gut health is good or bad? Probably their bowel motions and how those have changed. Yeah. Whether they were constipated before, had diarrhea before, or just the ability to pass a, a, a stool without an issue. Because you know, oh, so it's made them more regular. It doesn't necessarily mean that their immunities are. Well, they might notice that they're not as frequently ill. Because uh. remember, your gut is your immune system. It's your concentration, your focus, your depression, yeah, uh, and of course the eliminating well, it's the waste products. It's everything. You've got that. You've got that. Um, that nerve that goes from your gut to your brain. It's literally what you eat manifests in your in your thinking in your brain health. Well, we also have a tissue called gut, gut-associated lymphatic tissue, which is uh-huh. the same tissue from your mouth down right through to your rectum. And it's the same tissue that goes all the way it's unbelievable. down. Unbelievable. The human body is nothing short of miraculous. It's also the, you know, if you think about when a baby is born, the gut is the communication with the outside world, the mouth and the gut. You know, it's the only thing that will communicate with the outside world, um, which is why uh, very often we'll find when we're treating a kid with recurrent infections, we go and look, well, would they perhaps put on antibiotics as an infant to treat whatever infection it was and wiped out all their normal natural gut flora, which is their army, to fight off infection and was never re-inoculated after that. My guest is Dr. Jackie Schultz, and we're talking about just developing a network of health care providers. You're welcome to send through any of your questions, though, to 34519. That's the SMS line. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You're also welcome to send us a message on Telegram. And uh, there is a message from a listener. It says, please, can you talk about flatulence, even if one is not eating broccoli or cabbage? We're going to do that right after this. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is Discam Medical Monday. It is Monday the eleventh. F- I keep wanting to say the fifteenth. It is the eleventh of July. My guest today is Dr. Jackie Schultz. So one of our listeners sending through a question saying, "Please talk about flatulence, even if one is not eating broccoli or cabbage. What could be causing flatulence if it's not? You know, there are certain foods that will be more flatulence-inducing, I suppose." Mm. So, I mean, that goes basically where we were discussing about gut health. And most of the time, there are two possible concerns. One is um, either they don't have enough enzymes to break down the food, so it's sitting in their gut for an extended period of time and fermenting. And when it ferments, the same way as when you, if you ever left a banana outside in the sun, it'll start to literally bubble. It will ferment. Well, I can't say I've done that. No. <laughs> well, think of COVID and pineapple and yeast and beer. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I can't testify to that either. But, but, but I mean, yes, I essentially, it. it's going to sit and ferment. So when, when food is sitting in your gut and it's not broken down, it sits and ferments and that produces gas. So that's one possible concern or one possible um, trigger. The other is if we don't have enough of the good bacteria to break down that food and move it along, it will just sit and ferment there and the person tends to bloat. So most of the time with patients, once we've worked out that there isn't something 
bigger causing the issue or any blockages, we might do uh, something as simple as a, a digestive enzyme and a probiotic just to assist them to, to digest their food and also make sure they're not constipated, that it isn't just backed up and fermented. Interesting. Uh, Austin, nice to hear from you, Austin. He says, uh, Shalom, Kathy. I would be interested to hear your guest's view on milk and water kefir um, on the gut as a probiotic compared to collagen. Okay, so as far as I know, kefir is like, it lo- almost looks like, like cauliflower, right? And you put it into milk, and I know this because I used to make my own yogurt at home. Um, you put it into milk, you cover it, and you just leave it. And the next morning... When you wake up, you have yogurt, and you take out the kefir, and you p- can put it into other things, and that's and that's how it works. And it actually grows, um, and it's 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 amazing. It's the most natural way to actually make yogurt, as mm. far as I know. Uh, yeah. So, how do you feel about developing probiotics using kefir versus collagen? So, for me. Th- I, I'm not going to always push collagen for gut. I know from patients I say it's good. I'm, I'm, I often look at the gut flora. And probably the only reason, not to say I wouldn't use the kefir, for me, a lot of the time people don't realize that a probiotic is as specific as an antibiotic. So you'll get different strains of good hohos to do specific things. Yeah, you've got to get multi-strains. You've and got to I get don't like the know nine what's the in the kefir. So, for example, I will use particular strains. If it's just general well-being, it might just be a lactobacillus acidophilus with a bifidobacterium lactis. But if I might want, fair enough, for a patient post-antibiotic to not get a thrush and diarrhea, that's when your, your ruteri comes in. So there are different strains you're going to need. So if a person's generally well and they want to... to maybe just optimize their gut flora. I don't see there being a problem with the kefir. Um, I'm not huge on dairy for gut. I do believe dairy is, is quite pro-inflammatory. So I'm never going to push the dairy. But yeah, it's to optimize, absolutely. But a lot of the cases that I'll deal with, like I might treat patients with inflammatory bowel disease, where I'll use a particular product where one of the extra ingredients is called Saccharomyces boulardii, which actually happens to be a type of yeast. But it helps the IgA immunity and inflammation within the gut. So there's so many levels to this question because at ground level, it's brilliant. But that's if the person's well and they just want to keep themselves well, keep their gut moving, and they respond well to it. But also don't overdo it. If you overdo probiotics, again, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. You can cause small bowel overgrowth. So you need to make sure that you're taking it when you need it. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm Kathy Kayla, and uh, we need to start wrapping up, Dr. Schultz. So you started off talking about... GPs and how when we go and see our GP before we've even finished telling him <laughs> what it is, he's like, yes, Kathy Kayla, I know you, here's your script. <laughs> right. So talk to me about an integrated approach to medicine. So, by I'm the way, my GP actually doesn't do that. <laughs> I'm just saying. But So I'm going to go sideways from what you said. So we said that and I said a lot of the time, you said, is there a growth and people are changing more to integrative medicine. I said yes, because now um, if we look at, and, I, and I'll use COVID as an example, prior to COVID, quite a few GPs would almost poo-poo any supplements a patient was taking, any vitamins and that. They were like, no, mm, just eat well, you'll be fine. And in theory, I'd love that to be true. But, you know, the food that we get is not enriched with vitamins and minerals. In fact, I mean, I love shopping at a certain store where I buy 
strawberries, I forget them at the back of the fridge and I look at them eight days later and they're amazing. That's not good. That's not normal. The strawberry should be shriveled and dead eight days later. The fact that they... No, but maybe your fridge is that good. Maybe. When not. ESCOM doesn't turn it <laughs> off. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yes, in theory, you, our, our food should supply that, but it doesn't. And what was so interesting for me, and I try to see positives in things, and even positives with COVID, is that there, were, there was an evolution in the way that uh, supplements are seen by GPs when they realized when COVID happened. And I mean, COVID took us all completely out, particularly when it started at the end of 2019 and when Delta kicked in in April. I mean, there's not one person doesn't know someone who was gravely ill passed away as a result of Delta. It was horrific. But a lot of the GPs realized they had very little within their armory of medication to treat these patients and stop them from picking up COVID. And they started looking elsewhere. And often I'd find a patient come in who had had COVID and they were given a script of supplements from GPs, which included vitamin C, vitamin D, selenium, zinc. And it was so interesting for me for the GPs to start seeing where the value is in micronutrients and vitamins, where we know zinc stops the virus from adhering to the nasal mucosa, that vitamin C pushes up your white cell count and helps your immune system fight off. Vitamin D helps your immune system. You know, it, we started to see the benefit of, you know, ter- it was a crisis, but it allowed the practitioners to look somewhere else and not only what was available within the conventional prescribing and help thousands of patients from something as basic as a, as a supplement complex. Yeah, and the supplements are important. And, and, you know, we were talking about probiotics, and while I'm not the doctor, uh, there's a concept that I know from water technology because in my past life that's one of the <laughs> things that I was an expert in, actually. And, um, you know, if you're keeping exotic fish, you know, at clients you had, you know, 100,000 rand koi, um, you want to make sure that that water is as healthy as possible mm. all the time. And what you would do is you'd introduce three different types of bacteria. There's a concept of competitive exclusion that your water becomes, so, and your environment becomes so full of this beneficial bacteria that you cannot get any pathogenic mm. bacteria that will take hold. And uh, it's the same with our gut. And, I, and we are a big hoho. We have we're a big hoho yes, with hohos in us, <laughs> and we just want there to be more good hohos than bad hohos. Yes. But that's essentially the balance, the homeostatic balance we're trying to create every day. Absolutely, Dr. Jackie Jackie Schultz. It has been too long, but it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much for Thank your time. Thank you. And uh, to you, I wish you a wonderful, healthy, warm week. I will be back on your radio next Monday, 10 to 11. Thank you so much to Diskem. You stay well. God bless. Bye.